Hello, welcome to Scandalous Books. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Jones. Thank you for joining me to talk about John Clayland's Fanny Hill. Before we get started, in case you haven't read the show notes, uh, if you don't want to hear a discussion of sexuality and very sexual acts, including uh, prostitution, lesbianism, and um, sodomy, you don't want to listen to this episode. If hearing discussions of the importance of women and children having bodily autonomy is going to bother you, especially in the context of recent uh, developments in America, you don't want to listen to this episode. Um, I will touch a bit on the uh, massacre at Uvalde in Texas. If hearing about my take on gun laws is going to bother you, you don't want to listen. We're not going to talk too much about gun rights in this episode because it's not terribly relevant, though it is related to the issues that are relevant to Fannie Hill. Um, but they will come back a lot in um, the final episode this season on Harriet Beecher Stowe's Dred Scott. So, uh, one final warning. I'm going to be using some language that you might not want small children to overhear. So, even if you're cool with it, you might want to put headphones in so that I don't accidentally teach your child a new word to go to uh, nursery with and get in trouble with. So... All of that said, let's get started. Um, Fanny Hill is the first English novel to be banned for obscenity. It's not terribly surprising. It is a pornographic novel, though by 21st century standards, it's fairly tame. Um, John Cleland was born in 1710 and he died in 1789. He had a varied career um, in 1728, so the ripe old age of 18, he went off um, to work in the East India Company. He rose through the ranks. By the time he left the East India Company under, in 1740, he was a businessman, which I don't remember my history of the East India Company. He did rise fairly high. He left abruptly and without much money. In 1740, he returned to Europe and did a sort of little tour because he couldn't afford the grand tour um, around the European continent before returning to England. Once he was in England, he worked as a hack writer. So he wrote nonfiction works for um, periodicals in addition to the fiction that he wrote. And he actually finished the manuscript for Fanny Hill while he was in Dutter's prison. So he went into Dutter's prison on the 23rd of February, 1748, and he was there until the 6th of March, 1749. Uh, volume one of Fanny Hill, which we'll get into how it's constructed in just a minute, but in the uh, original text, volume one is the first letter, uh, was published in November, 1748. And then volume two was published in February, 1749. So volume two was published less than a month before he got out. Um, there is some evidence that his printer helped pay for the, the debt to get him out of prison um, in return for 
as French are keeping most of the uh, royalties from the sale of the books. I think Cleveland was paid the grand total of 20 pounds for the manuscript. It wasn't that unusual for writers to end up getting very, very bad terms whenever they sold their manuscripts. But um, I think for what the printer expected to make on the book, that was uh, a very, very poor deal. So if you have read the, the Penguin edition, which is what I'll be referring to, that is the original, um, not cleaned up version. After publication, um, Clayland and his publisher and printer were arrested um, on grounds of obscenity because of the scene in volume two where Fanny is looking through um, holes in a wall in a pub and oversees two young men having sex. That's the bit the authorities in the 18th century had problems with. Not the, any of the lesbian scenes, not any of the heterosexual scenes. It was the depiction of sodomy that they took issue with. As you would guess, in later centuries, it's more just the issue of sex that they take issue with, whether it's between men and women, women and women, or uh, two men. So, you know, why this book has been banned or um, edited over the years isn't um, at all surprising to anybody. It is a pornographic novel and pornography is sort of famously problematic in the courts. Um, but this one, because it was the first in er, like sort of native English text to be treated this way uh, is very significant. I don't usually like reading to people. Actually, I really don't like reading to people even now, but I'm going to anyway, because the first two paragraphs of Joe Bristow's chapter in the Cambridge Companion to Gay and Lesbian Writing say what I need to say more clearly and more succinctly than I could rewrite. So there's no point rewriting it. I'm just gonna read two chapters to you. Um, so quoting Bristow here. Shortly after the English capital suffered two rare earthquakes in February and March, 1750. So um, a year after the publication of volume two of Fanny Hill, back to the quotation. The Bishop of London, Thomas Sherlock, rushed into print with a controversial pamphlet declaring that the seismic ructions expressed nothing less than a strong summons from God to repentance. Sherlock asserts that this particular mark of divine vengeance was a stern reminder of the destruction of Sodom by fire from heaven recorded in many parts of the Bible. More to the point, he blames these cautionary events on the unnatural lewdness of which we have heard so much of late. Here, he's, he implicitly refers to the vile book that he had a year earlier done his utmost to stop in its progress. In March 1749, Sherlock had already expressed his dismay to the Secretary of State that the prosecution against the printer and publisher of the memoirs of a lady of pleasure, commonly known as Fanny Hill, uh, had resulted in an expurgated edition that left out some things which were thought most liable to the law and to expose the author and publisher to punishment. 
The very idea that even heavily edited version of this erotic narrative should remain in circulation after some 60 copies of the first edition had been sold contributed greatly to his belief that the time had come for Londoners to suffer God's wrath. Ever since the Secretary of State issued a warrant for the arrest of Clayland, together with his printer and bookseller for publishing the memoirs, this lively novel has stood as the original work in the history of English literature to be explicitly banned on the grounds of giving offense. As its author observed to public manners. Since there was no legislation that specifically prohibited obscene publications at the time, it might appear that the seizing of Cleland's book simply amounted, in Walter Kendrick's words, to a small fuss. But given that the memoirs subsequently became a centerpiece in legal disputes over literary obscenity, the controversy, controversy surrounding its initial publication makes one point clear. By the middle of the 18th century, the state, abetted by churchmen such as Sherlock, had begun to exercise censorship in a recognizably modern way, insofar as it adopted the role of moral guardianship on behalf of the nation. Events relating to the suppression of Cleland's memoirs show that the state in meeting out, meeting out punishments against obscene works held in greatest contempt depictions of male homosexuality. End of the, the quotation. So, yeah, it's an understatement to say that the publication of Fanny Hill got the, the church hot and bothered if we're saying that God is sending earthquakes to London to, to punish them to, like Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, the focus on the scene of sodomy, which only takes up about two pages in the whole book, is not at all unexpected. Um, sodomy has been punishable by law, or had been punishable, thank, thankfully, Britain has moved on, had been punishable by law since um, I think 1533 was the Beggary Act. So that is all completely realistic. Fanny's response isn't at all unexpected, even though many of us today find it distasteful that she would have a problem with that. Um, that the churchman Sherlock is still upset with the expurgated uh, version of the text, though shows that we're starting to move into the church having issues with depictions of sexuality. Because in the expurgated text, they, they cleaned it up. Um, I really wish I'd had time to read one of the cleaned up versions because I'm not sure what would be left. The text of Fanny Hill the, in the, the Penguin edition only takes up 185 pages. The, uh, what is his name? Peter Wagner wrote the introduction to this edition and he says that there are 39 episodes or sex scenes. That works out to one every 4.74 pages. If you're gonna take those out, you don't have a whole lot left. But they definitely did take out all references to sodomy. That whole scene is just removed and then cleaned up um, Fanny's exploits as a prostitute. Really not sure how one does that. Um, there is some evidence that Cleland was aware that the book could cause offense. And depending on how you read his tone, 
you either read Fanny's moments of moralizing, uh, the most notable one as it is at the end whenever she's uh, settling down with um, her true love after he comes back from uh, the East. The, um, and she's saying, you know, that she's looking back on her adventures and that um, now she can appreciate the life of virtue. There, some people read that as Cleveland sort of putting it in there to appease the officials in hopes that it won't get pulled up for um, obscenity if he's using her obscene life to uh, teach a lesson or to promote virtue. And others read it as Cleland being just as bigoted as the rest of 18th century society. I don't suppose this is an uh, argument anybody's ever actually going to solve, so I'm not going to try to here. Um, it is absolutely clear that Cleland did have um, legal censure in mind when writing it because he doesn't use a single obscene word in the whole 185 pages. Now, if you were reading it and not surprised by that, then it may be that you haven't read other erotic literature from the time. Um, he's basically trying to avoid the controversy that John Wilmot, the second Earl of Rochester and other libertine writers got in trouble or, or caused because of their language. I'm not gonna read the whole poem, but if you're not familiar with um, Rochester, Google the, his um, satire on Charles II. My favorite lines in that poem, and it is a hilarious poem, are that, um, and this is about Charles II, the king, to assure the sauciest prick that e'er did swive, the prou proudest peremptoriest prick alive. In the 18th century, prick means, or meant what it means now, and swive meant to fuck. And he clearly just uses that word because it rhymes with alive because in the previous stanza, he says, peace is his aim, his gentleness is such, and love he loves for he loves fucking much. So using, of course, language that we would expect in pornographic texts now um, wasn't unusual in the 18th century. It's just that Clayland didn't want to have that particular legal argument. So he manages to use euphemisms to talk about sex for the whole length of the novel. Uh, at various points, he'll have Fanny, and especially in the beginning of um, volume two, he has Fanny comment on the euphemisms and the use of metaphor, and that she hopes that it's not too flowery and that word's not an accident. Um, is at, this is the time uh, in the history of science when you know, botanists are talking about the sex lives of flowers and using very human terms. Uh, so flowers have a marriage bed all of a sudden. Um, and Clayland sort of shies away from the flowery language. And instead you get very mechanistic language like um, the usual metaphor for the, the man's penis, whichever man it is that she's with, 
is the, the pleasure machine or the masculine machine um, or the masculine tool or the tool of pleasure. So that they're, they're very mechanical, materialistic um, terms. And that is, you know, that's showing Clayland's um, influence with, or influence by French philosophy and um, French libertinis, libertinism and theories of pleasure and also materialism. So you do get lots of metaphors. They aren't as tortured as they could be, um, but he's doing that to avoid using the language that was gonna definitely get the censor's attention and get him in trouble. So as we know, he didn't manage to avoid trouble by cleaning up the language or even cleaning up the text and taking most of the sex out of it. And this novel has continued causing problems in novels like it. At the time Fanny Hill was published, uh, there were lots of French pornographic novels and erotic fiction being imported and translated into English. Um, and Clayland is very much writing in the same vein as the French novels. And those of you who know your literary history, you know that French novels is shorthand through really up until the beginning of the 20th century for erotic or naughty texts. Uh, so that's not surprising that there, there is actually a, an historic basis for that um, stereotype. The worries over language and erotica and pornography continued um, more than a hundred years after Fanny Hill was published in 1857. Lord Campbell um, brought the obscene publications bill through parliament. And I'm quoting Bristow again, according to Campbell, his legislation had been spurred by his recent discovery that in London there had been quote, a sale, uh, this is quoting Campbell, a sale of poison more deadly than prussic acid, strychnine, or arsenic, the sale of obscene publications and indecent books. So now we've moved on from Sherlock, the, the clergyman, blaming obscene books for, or blame, you know, saying that obscene books are God's judgment on London and God expressed his displeasure in the form of earthquakes. And now obscene books are um, more deadly than deadly poisons. So now obscenities have become uh, actual weapons. There were people in parliament who were worried about this act, notably Lord Lyndhurst, worried about how we were gonna define the word obscene because he could see back in 1857 that that's one of those words that people who want to ban things can expand to cover just about anything they wanna get rid of. He was right to be worried. He didn't manage to put any limits on it. So we've ended up having this conversation about pornography over and over and over again. 
it wasn't until the 1960s that Fanny Hill could be freely published and circulated in the UK and the US. Unsurprisingly, in the 19th century, Comstock banned Fanny Hill in the US. Um, and I'm sure if it were the sort of text that made its way into school libraries anyway, PTAs all over America would be having a fit over it. But um, I suspect that it is obscure enough for that portion of the populace that they're not aware of it, so they're not upset over it. Um, it's not the sort of text that would get taught in a school in any case, so I can't imagine why it would be in a school library. I can, however, see somebody eventually having a fit over it being in a public library or indeed sold by a bookstore. I can't remember his name, but there was a news story a couple of weeks ago. A politician, I think from Virginia, has um, started litigation against Barnes and Noble for selling LGBTQ texts. Fanny Hill would be fall under that. So um, we're not through having this argument and it's not unreasonable to think we're gonna hear about Fanny Hill again in the nearest future. So we've already established the book talks about sex an awful lot, more than once every five pages. The um, novel itself, the full version, not necessarily the, the expurgated versions, which I think those were split up into 11 different letters. And I hate to think how they were cut up and rewritten, but the original novel is made up of two very long letters. Um, I can't imagine getting a 90 page letter from anybody. The first letter is about Fanny's early life through the end of her being a, a kept mistress. And then the second letter is about her entrance into life as a prostitute in a brothel. Early in her life, Fanny uh, is left orphaned and the woman who's caring for her really just wants her sort of out of her hair. So uh, like many a young woman at the time, she makes her way to London to make her fortune. And she ends up sort of thrown in at the deep end by a local woman who had gone back to the village she was born in and talked about how grand life in London was. And Fanny was too naive to see that this woman's clothes were too bright, a bit cheaply made. Probably she was prostitute, she was. She gets Fanny to pay for her to take them both to London and then just abandons her. Um, gives her an address to go to where she's picked up by a procurus, a madam, and um, off she goes. So the first madam, Mrs. Brown arranges to sell Fanny's maidenhead, not unusual at the time, and uh, sets one of her more experienced whores to um, helping Fanny discover her sexuality. The women share a bed, not at all unusual at the time. What is probably less usual was that the woman's purpose in sharing the bed with Fanny was to uh, awaken her sexuality. And uh, she does that. Fanny describes it in a fair amount of detail. Then 
she's introduced to the man who has bought her maidenhood. He attacks her. She um, resists and manages to escape that meeting um, with her maidenhead intact. She manages to resist all of his advances and, and get him to go away. He's planning to come back and try again because he's paid for it. He's going to have it. In the meantime, she meets Charles. Love at first sight. He takes her away from the brothel and um, they have a joyous few days or weeks, the chronology, I can't remember. I don't, I don't think it was terribly clear. Uh, she falls pregnant. He gets sent off to the East by his father because his father is jealous that his grandmother's giving him money and not the father. And Fanny's left to her own devices again. She miscarries. Basically, she's sold into um, prostitution again. The woman who owns the house she's living in at this point uh, arranges for her to go live with the gentleman as his mistress. She lives as a kept mistress for a long time, well, relatively long time. Um, and then she catches him with the parlor maid, uh, gets annoyed that he's cheating on her and uh, seduces one of his male servants. That seduction scene is very well the, really the whole text is phallic centric that seduction scene is very much so because um the servant has the largest instrument fanny has ever seen and she struggles to take it in um the gentleman who's been keeping her finds out kicks her out and sends the servant back to the country. Uh, basically fires him and sends him back home. And that takes us to the end of volume one. Um, in the scene where Fanny does lose her maidenhead to Charles, the, the man she actually loves and the one she ends up with at the end, uh, the description of the pain of having sex for the first time is very graphic, but Fanny tempers that with, she's doing it willingly because she loves Charles and she wants to be with him. So that's far less horrific than what could have happened with the, the first man to try to buy her maidenhead. And, you know, Charles hasn't bought her. So that helps that relationship immensely. Um, the first letter I find a lot more readable than the second. You get more of Fanny's personality, more of her sort of backstory, emotional state, and there, there is quite a lot of sex in that first uh, volume, but it is more in context. In that sense, it reads a little bit more like what we would now call feminist porn if you think of feminist porn as pornography. So works that are focused on sex, but it's a sex in a, a context and a relationship where the characters are more developed. Whereas more masculine porn tends to be people come together and have sex. So the sort of cliched version for 
internet porn would be pizza delivery guy turns up, hot woman is at a home and not happy about, about being alone. So she seduces the delivery guy and then the plumber comes in and joins them and they have a threesome. There's no relationship there. There's no sort of development. There's no plot. It's just bodies are in a room and they have sex. That's a, how the a lot of the second letter feels. It's just Fanny or one of the other prostitutes describing one sex act after another. Um, until the very end when Charles comes back and they have a, a rapturous reunion. And by that point, Fanny has money because one of her lovers has left her his estate and um, Charles has no money and they're able to get married and live a very bourgeois virtuous life. In volume one, all of the sex acts are fairly vanilla, except for the, the man at the very beginning buying her maidenhead. Um, in volume two, things get a bit kinkier in 21st century terms. In volume two, you have another man wanting to buy Fanny's maidenhead, which of course is long gone by this point. And um, she works with the, the madam who runs the, the brothel she's in, Mrs. Cole, uh, to fool him. The, Mrs. Cole puts blood-soaked sponges in secret compartments in both of the, both sides of the headboard of the bed that she's on with that man. So that uh, after they have sex, she can discreetly get one down and put blood where there needs to be blood for him to believe that he's taken her maidenhead. You also get several scenes of um, not necessarily like threesomes, but people watching others have sex. So you get more voyeurism um, whenever Fanny is sort of brought into the, the last brothel that she's part of. Her initiation involves her and two other prostitutes with three men um, spending a pleasurable evening together. They pair off and they take turns having sex in front of each other. And part of that is, you know, the, the other, the more experienced women making sure that she's going to fit in and that she'll cooperate. And part of it is that they just like watching people have sex. You get a bit more of that later on. The last time Fanny is shown with a client, she goes um, to the riverside with another prostitute and two men, and they all have sex in front of each other. But you don't get sort of multiple people involved in, it's always a couple. The other kinks that you get are um, Fanny ends up spending an evening with a flagellant who insists that she first restrain him and um, beat him and then that they trade places. She does that mostly to prove to the madam that she's brave enough to do it and because she's curious about it. After she's done, she decides she's never doing that again. 
and then the others are in some ways tamer, in some ways weirder. Uh, there's a man who likes to come and brush her hair. That's all he ever wants to do with her, but he pays to brush her hair. And um, he also brings her a set of new pristine white kid gloves for her to put on so that he can bite the fingers off the gloves. So Cleveland is aware of kinks or sexual perversions um, in addition to um, other sexualities beyond being heterosexual. So you can see why the religious uh, groups over the centuries have had issues with this novel. As a pornography to a 21st century audience, it's very tame. It's also fairly masculine. Um, there's more focus on female pleasure than you might expect from an 18th century text. But there's also the assumption that women need a phallus to orgasm. So the, the first scene with Fanny and the prostitute um, when she first gets to London, neither of them is completely satisfied because they still feel empty. And that comes back several times throughout the novel. So that will probably annoy um, modern readers that it wouldn't have been thought unusual at the time. Attitudes towards women's pleasure over time have varied greatly from, as I mentioned in the Chaucer episode, the um, chivalric handbooks basically that were about for knights to read in the 13th, 14th and 15th centuries argued that men needed to know how to bring women to orgasm because the orgasm was vital to, or they thought the orgasm was vital to conception. And then by the sort of 18th, 19th century, we're not supposed to talk about women enjoying sex anymore. And that's where we're moving towards with, you know, Sherlock and um, Lord Campbell arguing that pornography is either anchoring God or literally poisoning the populace. So I would love to know what you all made of Fanny Hill. If you at point, points thought that she was starting to sound like Moll Flanders, like after um, every time she's left alone in the world before she finds the next place she's going to live or brothel she's going to join, we get a catalog of all of her money and possessions and how much she could get for them if she sold them. That is still very much of its time. Women left on their own really only have one thing to sell. Fanny has no problem selling it, but she's bright enough to realize she needs to get a good price for it. Uh, whenever you get references in this text to unwanted um, consequences, those are both references to unwanted pregnancies, but also to what they would have called the French pox or um, syphilis. Because obviously prostitutes would have to worry about syphilis. They had no treatment for it at all. And if you got syphilis, you were gonna be disfigured and you weren't gonna be able to work anymore. And then you were gonna die. Um, 
Fanny Hill doesn't have a lot to say about the problem of prostitutes having unwanted pregnancies. She only mentions one pregnancy, um, and that is when Charles gets her pregnant early on, and then she miscarries. She does explicitly say she didn't do anything to cause that, um, because of course that would definitely have been illegal and frowned on. But also getting an abortion at that time would have been quite dangerous. It would either have meant going to a wise woman and drinking poison in hopes that it uh, killed the fetus but didn't kill the woman or whatever they used in place of wire coat hangers. And this brings us to the current situation in America. Throughout the novel Fanny Hill, Fanny has, she does focus a lot on her, her own pleasure and the pleasure of the men that she's with. But she also has precious little choice. If you follow through the chronology, and it is admittedly sketchy, she's about 15 when all this starts. So she's 15 when the first madam sells her, tries to sell her maidenhood. She's 19 at the end, or no, she's almost 19 at the end whenever Charles comes back and they get married. So we are dealing with essentially a child prostitute who doesn't have a lot of choices and she makes the best of a bad situation. In the terms of what's going on in America, and if you haven't been watching the news or you don't watch American news, they, uh, there's been a leak from the Supreme Court that suggests they are about to overturn Roe v. Wade, which means women will no longer have a constitutionally protected right to have an abortion. And in some states, mostly Southern states, that's going to lead to a lot of unwanted pregnancies, women who will have babies that they will not be able to feed, but also women who will die from being pregnant because some of the state legislatures aren't recognizing things like ectopic pregnancies being unsurvivable. And um, just the simple fact that once the fetus has died, the body doesn't always expel the dead tissue. And sometimes doctors need to go in and remove that, but that's deemed to be an abortion. So some lawmakers don't want to allow that. Looking at the long history of women and sex and the law, and it starts well, be well before Fanny Hill, the direction America is going cannot be good for women or children. Um, that's why I needed an extra two weeks because two weeks ago when this episode was due, I was more at the fuming, not keeping a civil tongue in my head um, about the idiotic American politicians. I'm still fuming, but I'm calm enough to make complete sentences now. The fear that we could get back to a point where women have no control over their bodies is very real. It, it could happen. And I worry if it happens in a country like America that is very good at exporting its culture, that it could spread. Um, 
this goes beyond you know, women being able to have abortions. That is important medical care that should be between the pregnant woman and her doctor. Because not letting girls who have been raped by family members abort the result of that rape is forcing girls to live with other people's bad decisions and too often die of other people's bad decisions. It's going to turn into a world in which women don't get to choose when they have sex and they don't get to choose when they have babies. And that's not okay. It is related to what's going on with um, the left, or actually the majority in America lobbying for gun reform and the minority um, ultra conservatives protecting what they perceive to be their rights to own guns because whenever we decide that one group gets to own assault rifles and another group gets to do active shooter drills in school, we are saying that the group with the assault rifles rights mean more than the child's rights to live. So all of this is related and it's hard to look at and it's hard to not get wrapped up in anger over because there's a hell of a lot to be angry about right now. But I think it is more important than ever that we continue looking, looking at the texts like Fanny Hill. They've been causing problems since they were published, looking at why people find them threatening and understanding the history so that we can recognize when we're repeating it because we absolutely are repeating it. Um, Will that change the minds of the far right in America? No, but not speaking out would change me in ways that I'm not happy with. So I hope that you have found this episode enjoyable is the wrong word, especially for the, the last bit, but interesting, engaging, maybe is a better word. And I hope that you will continue to speak out whenever you see things that aren't right that need to be protested. And I hope you will let me know um, what you think of Fanny Hill. It is a, a funny little novel. I won't say I would be in a hurry to read it again. As I said, the first half was a lot more engaging than the second. I kept falling asleep in the second half. Um, yeah, pornography is probably not meant to put you to sleep, but it was just one sex scene after another for no reason. So there was nothing to keep me, keep my attention. I would either lose focus and forget what I was reading and just the words would sort of go through my head and I wouldn't take in the meaning or I would literally fall asleep over the book. So um, let me know what you think of it if you've had a chance to read it. And um, yeah. I will see you in two weeks for something completely different. Our next text is Little Red Riding Hood by the Brothers Grimm. So yeah, from pornography to fairy tales. Until next time, happy reading. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. As you likely know, I hold regular 
scandalous chats in the weeks between episodes if you want to join me to talk about the the book I've been talking about or any of the issues raised in the podcast. These are informal chats. Don't feel that you need to have finished the book before you come to them. Uh, This is not school. Nobody's going to be checking up on whether you've done the reading. So I hope you'll join us. See the link in the show notes to uh, book a time. Talk to you soon.